The Incomparable Podcast, number 19, for January 2011. It's a new year and time for a new edition of The Incomparable Podcast. Welcome, everybody. I'm Jason Snell, your host. With me today, I have two guests for our exciting Incomparable Book Club. Yes, we've managed to kill just about everyone else, (laughs) but two remain alive and they enter our thunderdome here today uh from the pacific northwest glenn fleischman thank you for reading the book you are very welcome somebody had to do it and from the east coast from philadelphia um lonely no longer scott mcnulty thank you for being literate scott you know i think this is what happens to all book clubs isn't it slowly people just stop coming so you mean the next one will be jason talking to himself Yes. I, I, or either that or it'll be me talking to my um, digitized version of Dan Morin that I can play <laughs> back and debate things with at, at my leisure. So our, our uh, topic today, primary topic, first topic, is uh, the, the book selection, which is How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, which is by Charles Yu, I believe. Charles Yu. That, that, that is correct. All right. Um, and this is a and- very peculiar book book uh glenn do you want to kind of step us through kind of the overview of what this what this book is i'm gonna give it a try it's um i think it's uh, you know i think it's a very interesting book because it's um it has a feel uh, i'll give the like the big picture it has a feel of some of that new science fiction stuff from like the 1960s and 70s when everyone was tired of the golden age and then the silver age and it all sort of exploded into Harlan Ellison and things that were almost unreadable, but they were different, right? So there's a little bit of a tincture of this. This is not unreadable, but it's um, it's very difficult reading. So it's I, when I come to the plot, it's like, all right, well, I think this is what happened. You know, it's not that a guy got a ray gun and charged across the universe and killed the Splargs and won the girl, you know, which I've been reading books like that recently. Um, in this book, let's say, I think almost anything I say might trigger the spoiler horn, but I'll start slow. So it appears to be there is a gentleman who is a time machine uh, repairman. Repair, repairman. Repairman, right. Yes. I mean, I think we could agree on that. <laughs> we can, and his name happens to be Charles Yu, who is the author of the book. Right, and he seems to live in a universe that is uh, is intertwingled and entwine with our own and the science fictional universe is a construct within the book and it is something to which he possesses um, some power of movement like for a while you think this is thoroughly abstract it sounds like he's been in a kind of stasis for 10 or more years in which he visits different locations in different uh, adjacent universes and repairs people's problems where they uh, people go back to visit events in the past and they make changes that they are outside operational parameters it's very very Maytag salesperson uh, oh you know you shouldn't have put the you know the ACI card in here oh he put the ACI card in that always causes a blowout we really need a you should have gotten the upgrade, and I, I can fix it, but it's going to cost fifteen dollars. So we kind of—it's quotidian at times, you know. It's this very much like he's like any repairman, and then it's um, then it keeps blasting into metaphysical aspects, and uh, then there's these regular citations from a book that is in fact called "How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe" inside the book, and over time we come to realize that uh, his father, the tr- fictional Charles Hughes' father, has invented time machines, sort of, and that Charles Yu, Yu has 
people he visits, including his mother, who is stuck in a time loop he created for her, in which she repeats a pleasant event over and over again. I don't know if I would say stuck. She's in a time loop. She's sort of been placed in a time loop so that it it would be easier on her or something. Exactly. And she has some awareness of it. And he has a dog who doesn't exist. The dog was sort of a fictional construct that was being thrown out, and he felt bad for it. So he has the notion of a dog... That is not quite a dog, and he has an onboard uh, artificial intelligence system that is self-aware but kind of sad. Tammy, she weeps a lot, and his boss is a computer programmer. Doesn't realize, at least for a while, that he's a computer program. Yes. So you know, some of these are very nominal science fiction elements. These are things that ever you know, a lot of science fiction of all these constructs that come to- together. But what keeps breaking down is. Um, it, as you read the book, you keep um, sort of peeling down through allegory, and you're like, oh, is this a story of a guy who's 30-something, his life has been a mess, and he's writing about it in this heavily allegorical way, and his troubled relationship to his parents, his parents getting divorced, and his childhood in which his father was never pleased and could never achieve what he wanted to, or is this like, pure, you know, like we talked about with the city in the city, your perspective keeps changing sometimes with every page as to whether this is, you know, a novel of personal self-exploration, thinly veiled with science fiction elements, or a science fiction novel with oddly autobiographical, potentially autobiographical elements inserted inside of it. So what do you think? Did I do an okay job so far? <laughs> yeah, I think, I think so. And I, I think, in fact, it's not even an either-or. I think that in some ways that's exactly what the book is. is it's an autobiography um, with sort of a filter run on it to turn it into a science fiction novel. Yeah, and then you know, and then there, but he has points where he introduces specific elements that are associated with science fiction books, uh, and also, um, I mean, even the title, science fictional, as opposed to science fiction. It's you know that is a cue there, but there are elements where he inserts um, things like uh, you know he goes back, apparently goes back in time and shoots himself, or there are paradoxes that are classic science fiction time travel paradoxes that he introduces, but then dispenses with or incorporates in completely in. Uh, insane ways that that are again like sometimes i feel like i'm reading philosophy when i'm reading it sometimes it's like a you know a, a dense um uh, novel that's designed to be interpreted by literary critics and sometimes it's like a rousing good sci-fi story it, it is sort of uh, got two parts right it's got this introductory part where you meet this you meet this guy and he he's a time machine repairman and he lives out of time he sort of like doesn't want to access his actual life so he he just doesn't return uh home and he and he's fixing the time machines. And then there's that scene, core scene in the middle of the book where he is walking to his time machine and the door opens and he gets out of it and he sees himself and shoots himself and then gets in the time machine and leaves and realizes he's just sort of looped himself. And that's where the book gets seriously weird. And it turns out that he's been writing he needs to read a book called How to Live Safely in a Science Fictional Universe, which he himself wrote in the time loop. So he writes it as he reads it. And then we, it, it all kind of goes uh, crazy. And then he ends up trying to find his father who's li- living in a uh, uh, an imaginary kind of parallel universe that he's trying to track him down. Um and as a science fiction story, that's the point where I really started to think, what the heck am I reading here? Um, where it, it got seriously weird, 
Although, you know, I understand it kind of on that allegorical level, but that's where it got really weird is after he shoots himself and and then he's playing all the cards, right? He's like, you, you're in a time loop. You've, you, you know, you're not just killing your grandfather. You're killing yourself. You, you've got a book that's been handed to you that you yourself wrote. So how do you write it? Which is you write it as you read it. It's just and that's where it goes. It, it's crazy. Right. Then, yeah, he's he's an observer in his own past. Right. Then he's in alternate realities where he sees like his mother in a place that she doesn't or the woman. Well, there's the whole the woman he never married who is uh, almost instantiated. The the woman he never fell in love with. It's like a real person sort of as a construct. It's a, anything that's a construct in his book being, can become a real thing that you can uh, interact with. Well, and everything that could have been possible is it does theoretically does exist everywhere and i think that's part of it too is that if you're writing a uh an autobiography even you know you wonder what might have been and in the science fictional universe everything that might have been it did happen somewhere in a in another universe and i think that's sort of what he's getting at um scott wh what did you think of this one uh i thought it was interesting uh i'm not quite sure I you know every once in a while I read a book and I think to myself, um, well, often I think while I'm reading, which is good. But this is the book where I think, is the main character insane? So does anything <laughs> in this book actually happen, or is this all just an insane dream that this character is having? Uh, and I, I don't know the answer to that after reading the book, whether or not any of these things, you know, within the fictional universe that the book inhabits if if these events actually happened or if this person is just insane because you know he has a dog that doesn't exist he his father apparently invents a time machine in their garage uh but there's no real proof that it worked and then when they were going to show it to someone like a, a third party it didn't work and then all of a sudden it did work and the the bad some other corporation i guess stole his idea so i don't know maybe i'm crazy <laughs> Oh, it's a, it's a strange, it's a very strange book, and um, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that I liked it actually. I, I thought it was I thought it was interesting, and it was very interesting to see him, uh, the author, make these uh, just crazy <laughs> decisions to just do. I'm going to put it all out there. I'm I'm going to lay out every single science fictional element you could think of, and I appreciate it as a, as essentially a, a an exploration of his own life. Uh, of the author's life and his relationship with his parents. And, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting on that level, but I honestly, I cannot say that I enjoyed reading it. I, I thought it was a, yeah, a weird and, you know, a little bit off putting and, and I'm not quite sure we ever really get a, a, a good grip on who the, who the narrator is. I feel in some ways that I had a, a, a you know, it was hard. A lot of the characters, it's almost like they're sort of shadow figures where, you know, they're, they're present, but I'm not really quite sure who they are. Or, and that goes for the narrator, but also goes for the mother and the father, too. Yeah, I wouldn't say exactly. It's sort of a, um, you know, there's a joke in a Laurie Anderson album about, like, welcome to dis difficult listening hour. Please button your top button on your shirt. Sit back and, you know, bolt upright in an uncomfortable chair and prepare to listen to some difficult music. And I'm always like, that's that's what it's about. It's like, this is a hard book to read. Is it worth it? I'm still not sure after having finished it. I was disappointed by how conventionally the book was brought to a conclusion. I mean, not... That's exactly, not exactly right. It's not conventional. I just thought it wasn't, didn't fulfill its promise of how strange it was by how it ended. Um, but it was, uh, it was an attempt to write something that was not easy to read. 
And but, that's but something you've point. seen before structurally in some ways. And it, it mm-hmm. is, I mean, it, it, he, like I said before, he, he pulled out all the, all the stops, all the tricks, right? So he's got the, the this book is quoting itself, you know, but this book is also quoting from a, a book in the universe. And then that book is being written in the story. And, and then it's being read and written simultaneously in the story. So it's like inside a circle within a circle within a circle within a circle, uh, which, you know, high, it's a high wire act. I, I'm not sure it really works. Um, I was thinking, actually, uh, if I was in a, a college um a literature class yeah. and we got we got uh told go out and buy any you know book published in the last five years and write a story you know write a write an essay analyzing it from a mm-hmm. literature class analysis kind of perspective of let's take it apart and consider what the author is doing i would pick a book like this because <laughs> it, it does like we've been talking about it does have all these like layers of what does it mean and what's the technique and and, and on that level you know, it's interesting it, it but that's not a level of you know entertainment value, I guess I would say. So so much as it is, you know, it, it, interesting to dissect to, to as, as an autopsy, really. Yeah, you know what this reminded me most closely of at some level is Nicholson Baker's Mezzanine. If either of you have read that book, I have not. I have not either. It is an interesting piece of writing with no We're out of bear- the club, Scott. No bearing Duh. on incomparables. On the incomparables, I don't think, or the incomparable. Um, the mezzanine is Nicholson Baker. I think it's one of his first books. It's um, it is uh, nonfiction. One could argue at some level, it is the entire set of thoughts that goes through his head ostensibly from the top of an escalator to the bottom. And it occupies, I don't know, 150 pages. And it is, you read it and it is absolutely understandable as a stream of consciousness of all the things that are sort of minute switches in how we, uh, you know, cogitate while we are ostensibly doing one activity or just even daydreaming. Um, it's a beautiful thing. And it's one of the greatest things written. I actually, I would argue because it's so, it's unique and it is, um, is so beautiful in its way. So there's, there are some things in common, I think, uh, between that, where this, this incredibly intense self-analysis that's presented in many, many different allegorical and biographical ways. That sounds awful. Yeah, it's not fun <laughs> for science. If we're doing, you see, now this is, you know, I'll bring up a meta argument since we're doing everything is collapsing and expanding above us in this book. Um, you know, sh- the, the, this podcast, I mean, geeky oh. things, do geeky things, can they not be hard to read? I mean, they need to be good, but can they not be hard? Well, they can, well, I like, think they can be hard. I actually like this book. I think I would recommend it, but I also, you know, I went to – I was an English major, so I spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff and my area of interest when I was, you know, reading for criticizing things was postmodern fiction. And this is oh. the, the, the quintessential kind oh, of yeah. postmodern thing. Whenever You know, whenever an author is a main character of their own book, I am interested. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is an epitaph. Kind of and then the book is written in the book and read and written inside. The, I mean, exactly. how many and more then, met levels of meta can you get here? It's oh, craziness. Think- it reminds me of uh, another author, uh, Don Bartleme. I don't know if anyone has. Oh, yeah, Donald Bartleme. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. I love his, him. His short stories, a lot of weird. He writes. Well, I think he's dead now, but he, he may be alive. If he's not dead, well, I apologize. Two, two living brothers, also extremely good writers. Yes, I actually don't like his the one brother's a gambler, isn't he? He yes. writes about gambling. Yeah, I don't yes. I'm, I don't really like his writing. But anyway, his his short stories are very odd and very entertaining. He had one short story about a woman who gave birth to a giant ruby 
and another one about a, a church, a, a, a town that was only churches. So <laughs> that kind of thing. And so it really reminded me of that. That's good. It's that, it's that weirdness is that the writer sits down and writes something that is um, challenging and insane, and they just go with it. They don't back off. He didn't write this. Charles, you didn't write this and go, I don't know, maybe this is a little out there. Maybe I should dumb it down and make it feel more like conventional stuff because I'll sell more copies. He wrote something really hard and strange and personal. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was successful, but I enjoyed it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I agree with Jason. I don't think it was a satisfying book. Mm. But I did like it. I'm glad yeah. I read it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I bring this up on the podcast a lot, but I sort of think there are a couple different ways you can appreciate something. And sometimes you'll get one or the other. Sometimes you'll get both. Sometimes you'll get neither. And I, I, on one level, for me, I appreciate the, um, the, the craftsmanship of the work and how it's put together. And on that level, I really appreciated this because I thought it was very interesting what he chose to do with it. The other level is sort of, Maybe you'd say it's a little more emotional or it's just, you know, am I enjoying it as a, as a, as a tale, as a, as a, an entertainment experience. And on that level, I don't, I don't think I would say it worked for me, but on the, on the first level it did. And, and to your point, Glenn, I do think that, um, science fiction or any other genre, it doesn't have to be hard, but it, it could be hard. And if, the, if a work is difficult to, to parse, um, that, uh, can be a, it can be engaging. It can be interesting. Uh, it can be frustrating. And sometimes I think those things work and sometimes they don't. I'm not quite sure what I feel about this. I mean, this this was – on one level, I wouldn't say this book is challenging. I didn't find it hard to read it, right? I mean, it is because it's using these kind of sci-fi tropes, I, 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 I found it uh, readable. I just, um, I just, I guess, found it a little bit off-putting. And while I could see what he was doing in his craftsmanship, I wasn't sure at the end of it that I, you know, I really felt connected enough to it to say I, I, you know, enjoyed the ride. I more appreciated the work that went into it than I enjoyed the ride. I guess. Right. It's not. A, it's not a very subtle book. He isn't trying to hide his craft. No. <laughs> it is. It is all right there. He's like, look at me. I'm a writer. <laughs> Well, and, and in I many ways, this. that's that. I mean, that's the whole book is look at me, right? I mean, it's I look it's at me. True. I'm a writer. This is about me, um, or is it? I want to I want to read a very short passage that is that stuck struck me as a writer, and you guys will appreciate this as well. And it's clearly as a writer, this is the fantasy of every writer. Is um, this is a section it is, is location 1282 in the Kindle edition, uh, in which he's talking ah, about yes, the, 1282. That's a, that's a good part. part. The whole 1280s are very good in that book. <laughs> he's talking about the toe, the textual object analysis device that is uh, interacts with him as he is writing the book that he is reading, and the TM31 is his time machine model 31. That his father apparently prototyped. So he says, uh, he's talking about reading the book. He says, in essence, my reading is a creative act, the product of which is being captured by the toad. I'm typing, even though strictly speaking, I'm using the TM31's cognitive visual motor sound activated recording module, which operates, as you might guess, by simultaneously tracking output from the user's neural activity, voice, finger movements, retinal movements, and facial muscle contractions. It's part keyboard, part microphone, part optical scan, and part brain scan. When I want to type, I raise my hands up in front of me, palms down in a position approximating typey, typing and a virtual QWERTY layout materializes in front of me. And it goes on in that vein, but you can see the writer who is probably having horrible problems writing, thinking of all the ways in which devices could be invented that would make the process of writing easier by allowing all of these modalities that, you know, tap into your brain, your intentions, and even your, you know, subconscious. Right. Basically, I think it and it comes out over here. 
Yeah, although I'm not sure exactly what I'm thinking, so I don't know what's going to come out either. You know, it reminds me a little of Philip K. Dick's The uh, Man in the High Castle, which he wrote, I believe, if this is, I think it's verified as true, by casting I Ching. Uh, all the decisions he made were through I Ching. So the novel is kind of crazy and veers all over the place. And in the novel, in the novel, it's understood that the universe doesn't exist in which the characters live. They discover this, that it's a fake parallel universe in which decisions are being made via I Ching. I'm looking at uh, my highlights on my Kindle actually for this book, and uh, and uh, here's here's the one that I I highlighted that I think is uh, interesting. This is from two six two seven, another excellent location. <laughs> oh, I love two six two seven. My inner monologue, that running story I've been telling myself ever since the moment I learned to talk, since before that even, since I learned to think. The story I began to tell while still in diapers in the crib, the babbling commentary, sometimes audible, sometimes not, that accelerated into childhood and then beyond, became a tortured and anguished story in puberty. This decade-spanning confabulation that has continued up until today, up until this very moment, this monologue of my life that will keep running and running and running until it gets cut off abruptly at the moment of my death. And I thought, you know, that was really interesting. And also, again, wheels within wheels, you know, it's a story about telling the story that it's about. <laughs> Which isn't over yet until it ends. Until it ends, except then he, he ends it and then continues because he shoots himself. And, yes. Um, the, I should also there, notice that the, end, the book ends with a picture of the book's cover and additional information that appears to be the start of the book, just to make that all. Sure, <laughs> sure. There, there were some. I, I will say, I, I, this we're talking about this, and it makes it sound like this is a really, um, uh, you know, kind of a downer of a book, and it's not. There's actually a lot of funny stuff in it. Um, he talks about uh, playing games as a kid and how they would play Star Wars, and and there's a, a hilarious part where he says, first, first dibs gets Han Solo. Everyone knows that. You don't even <laughs> have to say it. If you are first, you are Han Solo. Period." Which is great. Awesome. So there's a lot of funny stuff in here, too, about this guy. Um, there's some Hitchhiker's guide stuff, too. I mean, not uh, some of it, I think, is homage-ish, and some of it's uh, just unintentional. But, like, you know, instead of having a paranoid android, he has a depressed AI who is pretty funny and, and who evolves over time and develops more of a personality as a distinct entity, you know, not just sort of a plot device by the end of the book. It's kind of a love story, really. Yeah, he's in love with his AI. You know, it's a typical, story, typical yeah. sci-fi story. You're in love with an artificial construct. That's right. Yeah. Boy meets AI. <laughs> it's it's your typical the yeah, other yeah, the, yeah. the other item I I highlighted um I I quote from location 839 of course it's like a, it's like a at a sermon right it's like John <laughs> book 3 chapter 12 it's, no it's location 839 ah yes um but I love this because uh just of his use of language he says I stand there for a while shivering stuck trapped free <laughs> and it's that moment where he he um He's because he's been trapped in this time machine, and then all of a sudden he's living in real time, and he has to walk around, and he's got like a whole night, and he's staying at his apartment where the guy at the front desk keeps seeing him come in every day, but that over the last week he's aged ten years because <laughs> he only spends the night there occasionally, and and he's tr and he's he's trapped now because he's in time, and so even though he's free, his freedom is a prison to him, which is. I mean, to go back to the point of, is he crazy? I mean, there is that aspect of it, which is, you know, wow, this is a guy who does not want to live his life and does not want time in, in the world to to move. He just doesn't even want to be in the world. And it's unclear whether he succeeds. Far I'm not out, sure. Man. Who knows? 
But it's up, it's an uplifting story, really. Okay. <laughs> story of a man transcending himself, transcending himself. I is think. it suicide if you shoot yourself in a time loop? That is a good question. Or is it murder? There's a, there's a sci-fi story I cannot recall the name of, which is my theme for today. I cannot yes. recall the name of a sci-fi story in which um, kids are allowed to visit the future. Like, they take high school kids on a trip into their own future bodies in a way that they may not remember it entirely, but they can see where they go. And it's it kind of, it's totally um, ridiculous. But there's a bit where uh, this very nerdy kid and the high school beauty wind up like they're married. And she can't believe this in the future that it would be possibly be married, you know, in their 50s or 60s. And she accepts it, and they sort of spend their life together and understand what's going – you know, they have this whatever week together in the future. And on the way back, like, she somehow manages to get a hold of a gun, and she shoots him as they are pulled back into the past and kills him and destroys her own future. <gasps> it's like murder-suicide time travel. Pretty great little plot. Story not so good. That plot element, excellent. Murder, she will write. <laughs> the you know it, it, that reminds me of something my my wife always says about christmas um christmas movies and 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 tv shows where they're always trying to save christmas because it turns out that christmas is just this close to to being eradicated forever <laughs> right. if one thing doesn't happen to save it and that that strikes me as very similar which is you know the future future one little thing and the whole future is ruined Oh, I, I'm sorry. I just stepped on a butterfly. Should we end this podcast? Oh, this podcast never existed. <laughs> oh, it can't, no. This podcast can't be over. It never began. I, I'll say that's oh, one of the most disturbing things about the Crisis series of DC Comics. Many, many – DC Comics had a lot of crises, let me tell you. <laughs> really, infinite crises, crisis, multiple, yeah. multiverse crises. They had a crisis problem. Many, crisis, yeah, they crisis, had, if they you They had many, many crises. But one of the things that disturbed me most like metaphysically about those books was the that sort of retroacting like none of these worlds ever existed despite the comic books you might have that take place in them it like the you know not only are you dead but you never existed is such a horrible concept that i think science fiction it can express an existential like a double existential dread that is impossible to, to uh present in non uh speculative fiction because and, we cannot speculate that we never existed in you know a traditional narrative and what does that say about the people who read science fiction? That's what I want to know. We're all depressed, I guess. And I'm not. I'm a happy guy. I read science fiction because it makes me happy. It's smiley. It is uh, a happy, happy thing. I, I yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying now. I wish Dan Morin were here. He would agree he, with you. He'd make it all right. <laughs> he would. <laughs> He would. No, it's it's um, you know the whole idea of the you never even existed and and all that and that's what I love about science fiction is uh, you can uh, to talk about Charles Yu's book. I mean, he's using the science fictional concepts to talk about his own life, and that's one of the things I love about science fiction is that you can tell a story and make it interesting and 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 make an argument even in a way that you wouldn't necessarily do in something that was mainstream by by changing the parameters um you are able to explore the concept more than you would if you were burdened by today's reality and that that goes back to you know star trek telling you know the parables where frank gorshin is you know half black and half white and can't we all just get along and hmm that might have some bearing in modern 60s culture um, but I, I think it's true that one of the things I love about sci-fi is that you you can explore these concepts that might be much more difficult to explore um, 
if you are grounded in reality by taking it out of reality and making it completely ridiculous. Right. And sci-fi, the best sci-fi, I think, is often not about the future, but about the present, right? So mm. right. think about that. Right. Well, I, you could argue that, yeah, that, that any good sci-fi is really about when it was written and the perceptions of the future and where things are going at the time it was written. I'm, I'm planning to write a kind of science fiction that looks backwards so that it's, it's uh, the year 2010 and mainframe computers with giant vacuum tubes are isn't, still in use. Isn't that sort of Alternate what steampunk history. is? Oral <laughs> history, yeah. Well, no, steampunk. Doesn't steampunk posit that we're still living in the 1800s and we have the technology? Is there is – there, Retro retro steampunk in which it's the 21st century, but we're using steampunk technology. I uh, wow! I've outstripped you. I've stripped the oh, Jason you, gear. You've blown you, my mind. You blew my vacuum tube. So so let's in the in the in the future podcast will be radio programs. In the year 2000. <laughs> that would be awesome. Let's talk about time travel a little bit. That we we with Charles Yu, obviously we have a story that's all about time travel. Um, I'm wondering. Though this is such a common concept in sci-fi uh, writing, um, and there's so many things to choose from, I'm wondering if you guys have any particular instances of, of time travel novels that you've um, particularly liked or disliked. Scott? Uh, yes, I think I <clears> – it is as though I knew this question was going to be asked mm. because I have an answer. Uh, I, I would point to probably the first – and this may, in fact, be the first science fiction novel I ever read. So, um, and I haven't read it since I was, you know, in uh, elementary school. I imagine uh, "Time and Again" by Jack Finney, oh. which is all about time travel. And um, Jack Finney also wrote "Invasion of the Body Snatchers." If anyone cares about that, uh, and so the great thing about this book is uh, it's set in New York which I always like reading books that are set in New York City. And the main character travels back in time to 1800s New York, which is also something that I enjoy. Uh, in fact, this may have – this book may have started my it all started. weird obsession with 1800s uh, New York. Oh. Uh, and so the idea is that the government – it's 1970 and the government starts this program to figure out if they can time travel. And the way they think that you can time travel is if you live – so it's in 1970, so they outfit this warehouse with, uh, you know, period rooms and they have people live as though they were in, you know, 1880. And using only the power of your mind, you are transported to that time period. Uh, so the, the main character does, in fact, transport himself to that time period. And uh, a variety of hijinks ensue. Uh, and including where he's – the government wants him to change the past so that, you know, certain things don't happen and uh, people don't meet that need to meet and he, you know. So it, it's a very interesting book and kind of a prototypical, to me at least, uh, time travel science fiction novel. And it has illustrations. Oh. Nice. Glenn, what about you? Um, I'm going to reach into the past, too. I guess appropriate for talking about time travel and say Thrice Upon a Time was probably one of my... Uh, oh, James P. Hogan. Yeah. Now, he did he pass away? He recently before? passed away, and That's he right. actually lived for several years in my hometown, and I met him when I was a kid. And, oh. And, uh, and uh, yes, a very nice fellow, and sadly passed away recently in, in 2010. Well, I think and we dedicate this podcast to James we, P. Hogan. We do, to James P. Hogan, who wrote um great, by the way, great novel, Love, Inherit the Stars which was written on a bet. Oh, 
That um, is a familiar. I don't recall if that, I've that's, read that. That's but. the. Uh, it was written on a bet where all the, the, he was working at digital equipment in Ireland, I think, at the time, yes. and and he said uh, he had this idea of um, astronauts go to the moon and they find a dead body of a of a guy in a spacesuit that is completely unrecognizable. Um, that's been there for thousands of years, and it's a, it's a human. And and one of his coworkers said, "I I I bet you can't write that that story." And he did, and he got it published, and that was his first Look, novel. You know, it has, like, it has a fantastic cover because I just uh, googled it. It does. It it's does. The, well, it's the two. It's the two astronauts, and you, you can get it. I think we mentioned it on a podcast before. It's actually available whole... as a free download, an oh. EPUB download. Um, I believe still is that from and, and it's got that great cover with the two astronauts who are looking over a rock and there's the guy, the dead, the skeleton in the orange space. Yep. Yeah. It kind of looks like uh, a rebel fighter from star Wars. Yeah. And it's, and that's actually the start of a series. There are sequels, although it doesn't read like to also mention things that we mentioned on previous podcasts. It doesn't, it's not like there, he wrote one book and chopped it into three to make you buy three books. It, it, yeah. it stands alone, but then, uh, some of the concepts that come out in the kind of, you know, fascinating and semi-scientifically inaccurate, but still fascinating resolution to this plot of how this guy could be there, lead off to the sequel books, which are actually also pretty good. Anyway, but Thrace oh. Upon a Time is well, more hard sci-fi about how would you send a message back in time, right? Yeah, that's that's right. And I uh, I wanted to point out that some of the best fiction ever written was written on because of bar bets and, and bets. Uh, <laughs> so, I shouldn't say best, but C.S. Lewis wrote his Paralandra series because he and uh, and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, who were great buddies, um, sort of challenged each other to write sci-fi books. And oddly, Tolkien never wrote his. I would have been curious huh. to see Ents in Space. Oh, it would have been boring. Yeah, it would have been terribly boring. But so, wait, uh, wait until Tom Bombadil appears in the space books to sing his space song <laughs> in I, some strange language. Perceiving our, our April Fool's edition of The Incomparable being developed as we speak, uh, we're working on the script for that. Thrice upon a time, thrice upon a time. One of, so this is this book came out in 1980, and I think I read it right around that time. So I was uh, one year old. No, I was about uh, was I 12 at the time? Perfect time to. And I was already been exposed to sci-fi, but I read this book, and I I remember I read it again several years ago, and I remembered it so distinctly because it's a very sweet book. It's got great hard science elements in it. It's got a very innocent love story in the middle. It's got tales of loyalty. Um, it's got kittens or a kitten, I should say, a sort of quantum kitten in it, uh, the most dangerous kind. And a, a uh, instead of a butterfly, it, there's a ball of paper, bum 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 bum, that plays a key role in it. But um, but I think the book part of it is it's it's just such a sweet book. The the basic plot is that uh, this fellow uh, is it his uncle? I can't remember. It's his uncle or a distant relative. He goes to work with his uncle in um, somewhere in the UK in Scotland, right? I've lot not remember the plot. I should I should have come prepared with the plot. Uh, but this fellow has developed a machine. This older fellow has developed a. Um, device that allows you to send a message back in time, but only to previous versions of the same machine, right. which is a brilliant concept. And, and well, it theorists, has a basis in reality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's some theory. Yeah, exactly. You could build conceivably if some theories check out and you might have to, you know, who knows what the machine's nature would be or the size of it or the power requirements, but it is conceivable. You could build a machine that if the theory were consistent, Future iterations of the machine or, or other devices could correspond with. So, kind of, he was way ahead of his time. I think right. the movie Primer is very similar, if, which I love, oh. by the way, and I highly recommend. And in that movie, you have to build the time machine, flip it on, and then wait. 
And then in the future, you can get in it and come back to the point where you flipped it on. Right. And I sort of, I sort of like that. That ties in with Hawkins theories and so forth. Right. So we'll, you know, we won't, we won't do the math here, of course. We'll let people work that out on their own That's right. at home. But, get um, your whiteboard. <laughs> but Show it's, your uh, yeah, it's – oh, I'm sorry. You know, I've wait, I found the detail. It is Murdoch Ross and his friend visit Murdoch's grandfather in Scotland. I did remember some of the details. He's figured this out. And what happens is this is a seminal year in which uh, it's supposed to be – oh, it's supposed to be December 2009 even. I didn't realize this when it's set. The far in the future. That is um, far, far in the future. And What the cover, will the earth be like? The photograph or the drawing on the cover is marvelous. He's using a pet computer, clearly a pet with a few oh, yeah. minor modifications. Awesome. But anyway, the, so the novel is just a, a bunch of events happen that year, including, uh, again, from the future, Large Hadron Collider-style micro-black holes being created uh, after the device is switched on, not because of the device. So they're able, through the device, to continuously change history in very small ways, but only within the confines of the narrative structure, which is one of the things that's beautiful. And the fellow falls in love, doesn't fall in love, falls in love. His friend is dying, is not dying. He kitten bats a ball one way, a ball of paper one way, one the other. And the book ends with this sort of cliffhangery thing. I don't believe that a sequel was ever written, but it was sort of, you know, sort of a little throwaway um, as uh, uh, the developer of the machine wakes up one morning. It starts the first time he turns it on, it spews out hundreds or thousands of pages information including a note from the queen <clears throat> explaining how the entire planet will be destroyed <laughs> that's um it's funny the uh the well james hogan wrote another uh time travel book called uh the proteus operation mm. which is it is interesting it's but it's mostly a historical story it's about world war ii um and the premise is that it's the 70s and uh, the United States is the last country to have not fallen to um, Nazi domination. And they build a time machine and send a small team of people back to the beginning of World War II to see if they can change the course of history. Huh? And what's delightful about it is everything they, does, they do in back in time, of course, is setting this alternate timeline right into our history. So they're making our history uh, from this alternate timeline, which is I love. I love the time travel story in reverse, where you're not trying to not change the future; they're actively trying to change the future. And what they change it to is our present, our our history. That's good. Uh, it's a it's a good one, and it's similar in some ways to um, the book I was going to mention. One of the books I was going to mention, which is Timescape by Gregory Benford. Oh yes, yes. Which from 1981 or 1980, somewhere in there. Um, which I love partially because it's set at UCSD, where I went to college. Um, it's it's kind of a downer, I have to say, because it's set in a, a future time that uh, there's been, an, I think, ecological disasters and catastrophes. And um, essentially, the message seems to be you can send messages back in time, but sadly, it doesn't actually save the people who are sending them. Because you create, you branch off. What happens at one point in the story is that they they make so many changes. The information they're sending back in time, again, trying to base this on scientific reality, the information they're sending back in time is so great at one point that it can't reconcile itself with the um, with the future, and so it shears off into a parallel universe. So, oh, right. so they, the, yes. these guys don't succeed in saving themselves. They succeed in creating a parallel universe that can hopefully avoid the mistakes that led to this point. So it's it's really kind of dark, but yes. it's also a very cool, um, very cool story. So, I, I, and that that was a, a Hugo winner too, um, hmm. or a, or 
uh, Nebula winner. It's won, it won a couple of those big awards, and and it's good. And and that Benford, who wrote that, Gregory Benford and Greg Bear and David Brin, I think, all were at UCSD around the killer that bees. period. Yeah, I think they were all <laughs> at UCSD, which I didn't realize when I went there. You know, ten years later, two of them um, are now Seattle based. Interesting. Nope. Well, that's where you go. You go from one end of the uh, I five to the other end. That's right. Brin and Bear are our local killer bees. Um, and what else did I want to mention? I wanted to mention Connie Willis, who's written a bunch of great uh, time travel uh, yes. books. The best, my favorite of which, I would say, I'm not going to go for Doomsday Book, which is also a downer. I'm going to go for To Say Nothing of the Dog, which we've mentioned. I know on this podcast, hilarious <laughs> sort of book of Victorian manners, except it's about time travel. Um, mm. Just very funny funny book for for somebody who's written these sort of serious books her current uh, pair of books about the blitz and that book about um doomsday book which is about the plague are really dark and yet to say nothing of a dog is it, it is one of the funniest things i have ever read it's a very then, funny book speaking of funny books that have been mentioned on the podcast before uh jasper ford's thursday next series includes a character thursday next's father Colonel Next uh, was a member of the uh, Spec Op 12, which is an organization that uh, does time travel. And in the in that universe, they're able to time travel because at some point in the future, time travel will be invented so oh. that they can time travel. Uh, and he's gone rogue. So the, the Spec Op 12 sent agents to interrupt his conception so he was never existed he never exists but he does through some kind of manipulation through time he's able to exist and he pops up and helps thursday next through her adventures every once in a while i would also mention oh sorry no no go ahead i would also mention the evolutionary void which um i wanted to mention in passing i will mention it again when we talk about what we are reading but it has it is a very it's a trilogy and has a very odd conception of time travel in it which is that rather than travel through time you store the a pocket universe inside our universe powered by destroying stars outside this pocket universe stores a backup copy of everything that's happened. It's time machine for uh, time machine, the Apple product for science fiction. So if something goes wrong, you can consciously cause the entire universe you're in to rewind at great, great expense to the star fields outside and then just do it over. And um, the story, uh, the, so it's a trilogy and uh, the story centers on a bunch of, bazillion characters and it's like 2000 pages long but it's a unique uh, i think it's a unique conception of time travel as a capability of resetting reality as opposed to traveling through it the outside reality continues to flow at normal time while this pocket universe has an entirely different reality uh in which the changed events can be seen as well as or the the old events can be seen as part of a narrative in which the change occurs within isn't that the resolution of the latest season of Doctor Who, basically, that they have a backup for the universe? Well, they have a reboot. It's not a backup. It's more like... Uh, no, but like Amy, the, Amy remembers things, and that's she's the backup. Right? It's like an install disk. All right. Okay. <laughs> the TARDIS is the backup uh, air hmm. installer. I don't know. It's a no, uh, disk. What? The great thing about time travel is that you can get it to do anything... Uh, anything you want because it's just kind of crazy and ridiculous. As, and as long as you put the word tacky in front of enough things sure, or virtual you can do anything you want. So um, the other book I wanted to mention, and we, we exchanged some email about this, so I know what's coming that I, that I love, 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 love <laughs> is, is the time traveler's wife. 
I Which think Glenn, Glenn may have transformed into an angry gorilla. Hulk smash! <laughs> um, I love the time traveler's wife, and um, and maybe that makes me a girl. Well, but... I was going to say my wife loves the time traveler's wife. So, oh, so there, sh- there you go. There no... And she has great taste. There are no. She married me. Mm. Oh. oh well. Oh. Yes. <laughs> we all make sound mistakes. effects on this show. I can provide some of them. Uh, well, I will. I'll admit, I did not read the entire Time Traveler's Wife. I oh. stopped at a point at which it irritated me so greatly <laughs> that I thought I might explode, and so I had to put it down to now, save the planet. Wasn't your wasn't your argument that you didn't like the Time Traveler's Wife because it was so obvious what was going to happen, and so what's the point of the whole thing? Well, it was no, it was the heavy handedness of the foreshadowing, which I think is I, which may be exactly what you just said, stated more pretentiously, mm. but I don't know. <laughs> I think it might be. I don't know. My, as, my, um, my Glenn to human who, uh, dictionary. As somebody who, you know, Glenn often will will make a point, which is usually quite right, that um, uh, somebody will post something online and Glenn will say, let, let me guess, you're an engineer, right? Because <laughs> it, it's this application of a very specific way of thinking. And I have to admit, I had that response when Glenn told me that he hated the time traveler's life because he's like, but it's it's so obvious and it's heavy handed and this is what's going to happen. And my response was, of course, it's going to happen. That's the that's the whole point. The the time traveler's wife is is just a story about a married couple uh, who meet and fall in love and have a kid and live their life and then they die. And one of them dies and the other one is left without the other one. And that's the story of every marriage, with the exception being that um, they put one of them in a blender (laughs) and his time stream gets split up like, uh, you know, Billy Pilgrim style, which is what gives it its its spin. But what I liked about it is in the end, you know, yes, it's this question of what happened to him. And it's very clear, I think, early on what's going to happen to him, Glenn, to your point. Yes. Huh. They they never really wanted to talk about where her father showed up with his shotgun and seemed disturbed for some reason and there was blood i wonder if that'll be important later i mean of course it'll be important later but i i still love it because you know in the end it is to me that book is about the inevitability of of uh married a couple a couple loves each other as much as you could possibly love one another uh being separated by death and that uh you know the perspective is different because after he dies they still see him because he's in this kaleidoscope of of time travel and uh, you know i i thought it was really cool to take a a ride through a couple's relationship from that outside uh you know outside twisted perspective of of viewing it out of order which um you know Stephen Moffat has actually done uh, basically lift, lifted that premise and is using it for the River Song plot in Doctor Who, where they're also having their relationship happen out of order. That's right. We've already seen... <clears throat> yeah, well, let me... I'll tell you two things. One is, um, I will confess, uh, this is a live, on-the-air confession. Um, I actually thought the book was quite beautiful, and what hit me was, um, as I got to the point at which I suddenly realized that it was going to be a total heart-tearing tearjerker, I oh, yeah. found I couldn't take it. I hit... I mean, the, like, somewhere, I don't know, it was maybe a third of the way... When does he meet her in the library? The first time she has met him as when she's an adult, and he's never met her before? Or... Yeah, that's about yeah, yeah, he there's the scene where he hasn't she she meets him as a child. Right. But he in the library, um he meets her for the first time and of course she knows him very well and he has no idea who she is. And he's perfectly pleased because they go back and uh you know do Well, nasty. she's hot and she yeah. and she loves him and he exactly. doesn't know who the hell she is. So he's so like they go All back right. and have 
desirable intercourse. Yeah. Um, so the uh, I think I hit that point in the book, and there were a few elements that were revealed clearly, and I was and I just I found I didn't have the stomach to at that point to read further and uh, I could play the personal card I think it may have been after my mother had died um, see now I'm getting all weepy I'll make it all very personal well, but, I no, think it's... I, but I think that was the thing is Quite I think right. I hit a point where I just um, I uh, so I, I will actually I'm recanting my position but it's, it's not that I didn't like it I, I thought that I thought the foreshadowing was too heavy-handed but I also because the book was so well constructed I could see the machinery turning oh, that yeah. was going to make me miserable and I thought I don't this is like the uh, uh the Doctor Who statement is like you know sometimes nobody dies right there's those episodes in Doctor Who where there's a few of them like the doctor dances and uh it, the silence in the libraries is part 2 where, which is technically people do die but whatever um they, they have a backup <laughs> you know, they got a backup so it's okay it's it's that notion that in this universe in which everything is in the Doctor's universe where there's always massive amounts of death and destruction or whatever, sometimes nobody dies. So I had that reaction where I was like, you know, I am not ready to watch this inc- this amiable guy cast around by fate be killed in what is clearly going to be a horrible method and then all the loss that goes with it. So I, I, I back off on my it, previous statements. It is a sad... It is a sad book, but at the same time, I I do think it's very sweet and beautiful. And you know what I heard sadder though is the movie. <laughs> yeah, I heard true. the movie was not good. It's true. Um, <clears throat> no, but the book the book is beautiful, and I love how the book ends. I mean, the book ends with hit with because he you know he dies from their perspective, but um, he's still traveling throughout his life, and it ends with uh, the last time the the oldest he sees her. Right. So from mm-hmm. his perspective, it's the oldest he sees her. From her perspective, it's the last time she sees him before she ah, dies. And right. she's extremely old. And it's <clears throat> and it's so sad, but it is beautiful at the same time that, that it's this tragic story. And yet at the same time, you know, it, it's it's beautiful that he, you know, his his gift is also allowed them to keep seeing him after he's died. So, so that is a River Song thing, right? River Song has the book of all those times she's seen the Doctor and keeps flipping backwards in Silence in the Library where she finally finds, wait a minute, we haven't, she finally realizes right. they haven't met yet, this before right. the start and, of her diary. <clears throat> and she has, doesn't the character in uh, Time Traveler's Wife, she has a list that he gave her or that she wow, made and she gives that, him. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't she but a they, they, they figure out They figure out the, how to sync it up. Um, right. it's, yeah, it's interesting. So Scott, your wife liked it. Did you read it? I, I did not read it because it sounded a little too girly for my uh-huh. tastes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you I, 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 I'm narrow minded. So that, that is the, uh, it's great. I really, I really, she liked, really it. liked it. I, so. I love the fact that he's, um, the Henry, the character, uh, the main character, I'm sorry, I've spoiled it all for you now, Scott. But well, now I don't need to read it because it's just um, going to depress me. Apparently, but. it's no, it's great it, it, because you, you know it, it says a lot of things about relationships. So again, I apologize for being a girl, but um, it says <laughs> a lot of things about about relationships that that are so true, especially as you get older. That um, you know, we we meet him. You know, it, it's just funny because you meet him as an adult, as a full fledged adult who knows what's going on, and then the first time you really meet him. He's, you know, in his 20s and is is still, you know, going out to punk rock concerts and has his hair is kind of funny and his clothes are kind of funny. And it and it's hilarious because it's like, oh, this guy doesn't have it together at all. He, he, he oh. gets it together later. And you got And you got to love the scene <laughs> in which he as a teenager appears naked in the room, his own room with himself and the father walks in. Yeah. 
Yeah. A little hilarious. It's, it's, there's some good stuff in there. Anyway, so I, I bring up the time traveler's wife as well. So those of you out there who are not afraid of your, of your standing in terms of all you men out there who are not afraid of your masculinity and all of you women out there who bless you for listening to this podcast, um, which is all men today. Um, you know, yes. it, it's a great, I love it. We had love a shave book. during this podcast. Love yeah. that book. Um, Speaking of women who listen to the podcast, my 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 wife does not listen to the podcast because we were at Powell's when we visited Portland, and she said, "Oh, the Wind Up Girl. I want to read that book." And I said, "Didn't you listen to the <laughs> in, the the podcast where we talked about it?" She was like, "You're on a podcast." Yeah. Well, she can listen to it after she reads the one. My, my wife has a negative interest in science fiction. Her interest in science fiction is so low, it makes other people not read it. <laughs> wow. That's, that's impressive. Amazing. It's like a it superpower if she I, wrote science fiction. My wife likes science fiction, um, but I, she basically waits for me to recommend something to her. And it's like if it's good enough for me to be like, oh, you got to read this, then she'll read it. But she's not going to pick it up. Otherwise, she figures I can be her screener, which is uh, fair enough. But my wife likes science fiction. She just doesn't like listening to me. So, oh, well, uh, I, I, I can understand that. I enjoy. Oh. I, however, I enjoy listening to you. But she gets to listen to you all the time. It's true, nonstop. Yeah, and I don't know if she needs to listen problem. to canned canned Scott when she's away from you. She's oh, I can listen to Scott talking some you more. Need to, you need it's to visit. True. You need to travel more. And then the podcast will grow fonder. Ah, oh, that's true. I should leave so, my wife, and then she'll absence, love this podcast. So <laughs> makes we, the MP3 grow fonder. Before we uh, before we wrap up this podcast, I want to uh, go around the room, which will be not take very much time since we're the only ones who read that book. <laughs> the three um, vertices. Ask, ask your it, yes in the triangle of the book club. The musical question: What are you reading, Scott? What are you reading? I am reading something that is not science fiction. That's um, okay. Uh, I, I will admit it. It is uh, the third book in a series. Uh, the book is called Mr. Slaughter. It's by Robert McCammon. And it is about uh, a character by the name of Matthew Corbett, who is, well, starts off as a law clerk in uh, 1699. Uh, so it's a it's set in the colonial America, and he... Is it in New York? It is, he actually does live in New York. <laughs> uh, so it is colonial New York. I'm going even further back and more specific with my mysteries that I read. Uh, and so in this book, he is uh, looking for a bad guy named Mr. Slaughter. Not to be confused with Sergeant Slaughter. Wow. It's very good. All right. Glenn, what about you? Uh, I've just recently finished reading a couple big things. One is, uh, I mentioned earlier, is The Evolutionary Void, part of a insanely long series of three books by Peter F. Hamilton, whose work, I really quite like Hamilton's writing, but he, um, I don't want to say he overwrites, but man, he's got a lot of detail and he really feels the need to express it in seven, 800 page books. So I think the, the Void trilogy is like, uh, I want to say it's like 2,000 pages long. I'm not sure I'm exaggerating. I think it might I don't be. think you are. He, uh, but he wrote. He also wrote his earlier books. He wrote a, a detective, sci-fi detective thing, and those are much shorter. Oh, I didn't. I, well, I think over time people get less constrained if they sell stuff. And that's true. Going. It's, it's <laughs> the Neil Stevenson uh, syndrome. Yeah, but there's also um, Pandora's Star and Judas Unchained are earlier books that I quite. I think are a little more zippy as stories, even though there's a ton of detail. But so the Void books. I mean, it, the, the Evolutionary Void just came out, and. Um, 
read it on the Kindle because the book weighs 700 pounds and I use the Kindle app to avoid hurting my arms while reading this behemoth. Um, it's definitely entertaining. I, again, I think too many words <laughs> across three books, but the story is basically there's a religious movement that spread across, uh, you know, a, a alliance of many planets occupied by human beings that, um, uh, this primary character, the dreamer, the first dreamer, can see dreams of this pocket universe that show a different kind of life, and people eventually want to migrate into this pocket universe, but another race of beings has fought it back for thousands of years, or maybe millions or something, and the uh, and uh, if everyone were to go into that universe, they would create such an energy suck on the, you know, quote-unquote real universe that the real universe would cease to exist, and there'd be this kind of weird, resettable pocket universe. So it's, I think it's, I don't want to say rousing good tale, but it is very interesting. There's some good metaphysics, a lot of um, great explosions and fights, really well depicted huge amounts of um, destruction and uh, sadistic um, evil people. And um, it's, it's kind of fun. Um, I also now, finished. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say now it's a good time to read it. Cause it's all done. So, cause the yeah, problem have I have with his books is whenever he, you know, he has to write them. So you read one and then you have to wait a year or a year and a half to read the other one. And then I have, have no idea what happened. So yeah, I read the first of this, not realizing it was a trilogy, a planned trilogy, like five years ago. Um, the other thing I just finished reading is I got the collected versions of DC Comics, uh, Blackest Day, Brightest, Blackest Night, rather. Blackest Brightest Day, Day. Brightest Day, Blackest Night series, where it was across, you know, 400 different comic book series and there were whatever. I got the collected versions out of the library to read, as I found is a great way to catch up on a lot of comics because they put everything together in one place and you don't have piles of strewn, confusing things. And I found the stories really sort of incomprehensible and messianic and bizarre, but not too, but not too bad. I, you know, it's, again, library collections of comics, a great way to actually catch up on some of the interesting stuff that's going on in comics without getting enmeshed in, the, in you know, buying 500 copies and trying to collate the order in which things happen. That's a Green Lantern thing, isn't it? Green. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting. It's all of a sudden. It turns out. It turns out the guardians of the universe. They're hiding something, and what they're <gasps> hiding is there it's are other colors in the spectrum. What? Wow. That's sort of the plot. I'm shocked. <laughs> it goes That's, from there. That also sounds lame. So um, I read a lot of books on my on my Christmas vacation. I read a couple of nonfictions. So no, again, Scott, yes, these are not science fiction either. But I think people might what? like them because they're but science they, books. They do so take if, place in nineteenth century New York. If, if you like, oh. <laughs> if you like science, I read a very entertaining book about um, astronomy and about the process of discovering things that professional astronomers go to go through. Called, I love the title. It's by Mike Brown. Who discovered the uh, the uh, plant the not planet I guess minor planet Eris? It's discovered a lot of these um, these distant solar system objects, including one that is bigger than Pluto, which led to the whole existential crisis about is Pluto a planet or not? And it has the delightful title. How I Killed Pluto and Why It Had It Coming. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was guest blogging on Boing Boing for a while. Some yeah. great stuff. Yeah, very yeah, funny he, guy. Yeah, he's he's a funny guy. It's a good book, and it really does talk about you know it talks about his personal life uh, in an interesting way and his life as a professional astronomer and uh, what they went through. And there's actually a little bit of scandal in it too because there's a disputed discovery where it looks like this uh, team of astronomers discovered that they could use a Google search to search the data of the, oh, of the telescope uh, that they were using to discover these objects. And, and the name of one of the objects that they were working on had been published in a, in a, a basically like a TOC for an advanced version of this, of a, at a conference or something. And so they did a search for it and it turned up the, that they have the telescope logs and, you know, allegedly they then used that data to 
uh, pre-discover it before the team that was actually had already discovered it. Just it's a, it's a good story and and it's funny. And if you love Pluto and are very angry that it's not a planet anymore, don't read it. But otherwise, um, a lot of fun. I also read a, a not as good but a good book. Um, if you've ever wondered why the Large Hadron Collider exists yeah. and what they're really trying to find, uh, there's a book, good book by a guy named Ian Sample who works at I think the Guardian in London called Massive. The missing particle that sparked the greatest hunt in science, which explains a lot about the arms race that uh, led to the Large Hadron Collider and uh, the failure of the U.S. to create the superconducting super collider and sort of the politics of that along with the science. Um, And that was a pretty good read, too, and also a pretty fast read. Um, And then uh, novel-wise, I've been engrossed and i curse dan morin for doing this to me but i've been engrossed in lois mcmaster bujold's vorkosigan saga oh really uh-huh. i've read eight of them in the last month that is um, my kindle is loaded with seven of them so yes oh my goodness. And, and what i'll say to people out there is that what one what the publisher did that's very interesting is the latest novel in the series cryoburn comes with a cd and the license on the cd says that you can you can redistribute it on the internet, if you like, as long as you don't sell it. So essentially oh. what they're doing is they're giving away most of the books in the series in e-reader format. Um, if you search for them, I'm sure you could find them. Which is um, why my Kindle has seven of them on it. Yes, and it's why I've read all of these. But it's brilliant because if she writes another one that I have to buy – in fact, one of them isn't on there. There's a book called Memory that is omitted because it's not in one of the omnibus editions. And and I, I got to that book and I said, what? I don't have that book? Six dollars, you say? And that was it. I, I had bought it. So it, it did its well, job. So. But you know, I've got to say they're really good. I'm enjoying them greatly. So we'll, I'm Just, sure we'll do a whole Miles Vorkosigan podcast at some point. But I, you know, I've been seeing those on Hugo and Nebula nominee lists over the years, and thinking that's oh, a series. I, you know, I can't read it. It's such an investment, and I made the investment and have had a great time reading those books. And ignore the awful cover art. Yes, the cover art is atrocious. Don't. I mean, that's the nice thing about having an e-reader is you can just ignore the cover art. Um, on the Kindle, especially, there's no cover art. Just imagine. <clears throat> No cover art. That's hilarious. Uh, so before we go, uh, we're going to try something new on the Incomparable Book <gasps> Club, which is we are going to declare – this <gasps> required us to actually do some work in advance. We are going to declare the book that we are going to cover in our next installment, which will hopefully uh, be more people. And if not, it will just be me and Scott. Yes. <laughs> Glenn will have dropped out by that point. Sound Dan voice. Morin will have, have resigned from the podcast altogether. This so podcast the, is over. This podcast is over. That'll be the last thing we post. Anyway, mm-hmm. so so this is the book that we're going to read. So if you would like to not be deterred by the spoiler horn, go out and read this book. The book we're going to read, we mentioned it actually, I think maybe even on our first podcast. Scott I think, mentioned I think it, it was. Um, because it has a Zeppelin on the cover. On the cover. And it figures in prominently into this book. Gotten some great reviews um, on a lot of lists of the best sci-fi uh, you know, and genre in general novels of 2011 or 2010. So uh, we're going to read it. It is The Dream of Perpetual Motion by Dexter Palmer. And it's available in paperback. It's available for Kindle. So uh, check it out. And then we will discuss that back here in a few weeks. But uh, we're giving you the warning out there so that you can uh, get caught up with us rather than loading up your book club uh, podcast and going, damn it. I haven't read that book and then pausing it and being like Scott's wife and saying, I can't listen to this podcast. I can't. 
And I would like to point out that I read this book before it was on all of those best of lists. No, so. you you get a lot of credibility. We look to you, Scott, to find out what is up and coming. I am a trend sci-fi. setter. You are. I should note this book is available as an ebook from Google Ebooks, among other places. Oh, it's available That's in many. I get ten many, cents every time I say that. Now, nah, many kidding. reputable. <laughs> That's right. Ebook sellers and yes. in paperback, so it's affordable even if you choose to read it on dead trees. Ooh, and it's probably in uh, a library near you. Since it uh, is certainly in a library. There are sixteen people ahead of me at my library, and I have to kill them all to get the book in time. So I may have now to that's, purchase a copy. That would be a that would be a, a novel. It Murdering would. people to get to the book that, that is in a waiting list. We call the you, book we called Add to Hold. Uh, and then you'll find out you're reading the book and you realize that you, in fact, wrote the book. <laughs> well, gentlemen, thank you for reading the book, which puts you ahead of everyone else. Yes. <laughs> and I liked it. So two out of three, one out of three people liked it on the podcast. Is that I thought what it was we're... worth – I would recommend reading it, but I wouldn't say uh, that I liked it. Isn't that funny? I liked parts of it. It didn't hold together as a whole, but I would recommend reading it because it was very interesting, challenging, uh, thought-provoking. And Scott, you would recommend reading it. I would recommend reading it. And I would not. <laughs> but that's me. <laughs> I would recommend writing it. Ah, uh, uh, that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Before you read it, find yourself with a copy of it and in the future sh- and shoot, and shoot him. <laughs> Take then it. read the book. It'll have a much deeper meaning if you do that. Yes, that's much better. <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, I would like to thank my guests, Glenn Fleischman and Scott McNulty. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of the Book Club. Um, thanks for listening to The Incomparable. We'll catch you next time. This has been The Incomparable Podcast. Visit us at theincomparable.com. Dan Moore not on the podcast, but I had to mention him because he's almost on he's every, podcast. every podcast. Isn't that is contractually obligated to mention Dan? Yes. Well, he's he's ill today. Well, oh, I'll use that as the excuse. Also hasn't read the book, but is mm. happens to be ill. He could be reading it right now. And the dog ate his homework.